Chapter Eight of The Ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wyck Brooks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter Eight Those Extraordinary Twins. Joy with us is the monopoly of disreputable characters. Alexander Harvey. At the circus, no doubt, you have watched some trained lion going through the sad motions of a career to which the tyrannical curiosity of men has constrained him. At times he seems to be playing his part with a certain zest. He has acquired a new set of superficial habits, and you would say that he finds them easy and pleasant. Under the surface, however, he remains the wild, exuberant creature of the jungle. It is only thanks to the eternal vigilance of his trainers, and the guiding lines they provide for him in the shape of the ring, the rack, and all the rest of the circus paraphernalia, that he continues to enact this parody of his true life. Have his instincts been modified by the imposition of these new habits? Look at him at the moment when the trainer ceases to crack his whip and turns his back. In a flash another self has possessed him. In his glance, in his furtive gesture, you perceive the king of beasts once more. The sawdust of the circus has become the sand of the desert. Twenty thousand years have rolled back in the twinkling of an eye. So it was with Mark Twain. We have no real morals, he wrote in one of his later letters, but only artificial ones, morals created and preserved by the forced suppression of natural and healthy instincts. Now that is not true of the man who is master of himself. The morality of the free man is not based upon the suppression of his instincts, but upon the discreet employment of them. It is a real and not an artificial morality, therefore, because the whole man subscribes to it. Mark Twain, as we have seen, had conformed to a moral regime in which the profoundest of his instincts could not function. The artist had been submerged in the bourgeois gentleman, the man of business, the respectable Presbyterian citizen. To play his part, therefore, he had to depend upon the cues his wife and his friends gave him. Here we have the explanation of his statement, Outside influences, outside circumstances, wind the man and regulate him. Left to himself, he wouldn't get regulated at all and the sort of time he would keep would not be valuable. We can see from this how completely his conscious self had accepted the point of view of his trainers, how fully he had concurred in their desire to repress that unmanageable creative instinct of his, how ashamed, in short, he was of it. Nevertheless, that instinct, while repressed, while unconscious, continued to live and manifest itself just the same. We shall see that in the end, never having been able to develop, to express itself, to fulfill itself, to air itself in the sun and the wind of the world, it turned, as it were, black and malignant, like some monstrous, morbid inner growth, poisoning Mark Twain's whole spiritual system. We have now to note its constant blind efforts to break through the censorship that had been imposed on it to cross the threshold of the unconscious and play its part in the conscious life of this man whose will was always enlisted against it. 
First of all, a few instances from his everyday life. We know that he was always chafing against the scheme of values, the whole social regime that was represented by his wife and his friends. His conscious self urged him to maintain these values and this regime. His unconscious self strove against them, vetoed the force behind his will, pushed him in just the opposite direction. We find this conflict revealed in his story Those Extraordinary Twins, about an Italian counterpart of the famous Siamese monstrosity. Whenever Luigi had possession of the legs, he carried Angelo to balls, rum-shops, Sons of Liberty parades, horse-races, campaign riots, and everywhere else that could damage him with his party and his church. And when it was Angelo's week, he carried Luigi diligently to all manner of moral and religious gatherings, doing his best to regain the ground he had lost. This story of the two incompatible spirits bound together in one flesh is, as we can see, the symbol of Mark Twain himself. Glance at his business life. He pursued it with frantic eagerness, urged on by the self that loved success, popularity, prestige. Yet he was always in revolt against it. There were years during which he walked the floor at night, overwrought and unsettled, as he said, by apprehensions, badgered, harassed, and let us add Mr. Paine's adjectives, worried, impatient, rash, frenzied, and altogether upset, till he had to beg the fates for mercy, till he had to send his agent the pathetic imploring appeal, get me out of business. Why did he always fail in those spectacular ventures of his? Was it not because his will, which was enlisted in business, was not supported by a constant fundamental desire to succeed in it? Because, in fact, his fundamental desire pointed him just the other way. Then there was his conventional domestic and social life. He had submerged himself in the role of the husband, the father, the neighbor, the citizen. At once he became the most absent-minded of men. His absent-mindedness, Mr. Paine assures us, was by no means a development of old age, and he mentions two typical instances of it when Mark Twain was in the very heyday of his mental strength. Once, when the house was being cleaned, he failed to recognize the pictures in his own drawing-room when he found them on the floor, and accused an innocent caller of having brought them there to sell. Plainly the eye of the householder was not confirmed by the instinctive love that makes one observant. The vagrant artist in him, in fact, was always protesting against the lot his other self had so fully accepted, the lot of being bully-ragged, as he said, by builders and architects and tapestry devils and carpet idiots and billiard-table scoundrels and wildcat gardeners, when what was really needed was an incendiary. Moreover, he was always forgetting engagements, we are told, or getting them wrong. 
and this absent-mindedness had its tragic results too for because of it to his own everlasting remorse mark twain became the innocent cause of the death of one of his children and only just escaped being the cause of the death of another on one occasion he was driving with his year-old son on a snowy day and was so extraordinarily negligent that he let him catch a severe cold which developed into a fatal pneumonia on the other when he was out with one of his little daughters he inadvertently let go of the perambulator and the baby after a frightful slide down a steep hill tumbled out with her head bleeding among the stones by the roadside i should not have been permitted to do it he said of this first misadventure i was not qualified for any such responsibility as that some one should have gone who had at least the rudiments of a mind necessarily i would lose myself dreaming yes mark twain was daydreaming that mind in which the filial and paternal instincts had almost supplanted every other caught itself wandering at the critical hour and in that hour the old adam the natural man the suppressed poet registered its tragic protest took its revenge against a life that had left no room for it truth comes out in the end the most significant comment on mark twain's constant absent-mindedness as regards domestic matters is to be found in mr paine's record that in his dictations in old age he was extremely inaccurate on every subject except the genesis and writing of his books we can see from this that although his conscious life had been overwhelmingly occupied with non-artistic and anti-artistic interests his heart as we say had always been not in them but in literature and how can we explain the fervor with which this comrade of presbyterian ministers and pillars of society this husband of that heavenly whiteness mrs clemens jots in his notebook observations like the following we may not doubt that society in heaven consists mainly of undesirable persons how can we explain that intemperate that vehement that furious obsession of animosity against the novels of jane austen except as an indirect venting of his hatred of the primness and priggishness of his own entourage i should go even further i should be even more specific than this mr howells had been mark twain's literary mentor mr howells had licked him into shape had regenerated him artistically as his wife had regenerated him socially mr howells had set his pace for him and mark twain the candidate for gentility had been overflowingly grateful possibly he had written to his father confessor possibly you will not be a fully accepted classic until you have been dead one hundred years it is the fate of the shakespeare's of all genuine professions but then your books will be as common as bibles i believe in that day i shall be in the encyclopedias too thus mark twain history and occupation unknown but he was personally acquainted with howells 
We know, as a matter of fact, that he delighted in the delicacy of Howells's mind and language. But this taste was wholly unrelated to anything else in Mark Twain's literary horizon. We can say with all the more certainty, because he detested novels in general, that if Howells's novels had been written by any one else than his friend and his mentor, he would have ignored them, as he ignored all other artistic writing. He would even have despised them as he despised all insipid writing. In short, this taste was a product of personal affection and gratitude. It was precisely on a par with his attitude toward the provincial social daintiness of his wife. And in both cases, just in the measure that his conscious self had accepted these alien standards that had been imposed upon him, his unconscious self revolted against them. "'I never saw a woman so hard to please,' he writes in 1875, "'about things she doesn't know anything about.'" Mr. Paine hastens to assure us that the reference to his wife's criticism in this is tenderly playful as always. But what a multitude of dark secrets that tender playfulness covers! Mark Twain's unconscious self barely discloses its claws in phrases like that, enough to show how strict was the censorship he had accepted. It cannot express itself directly. Consequently, like a child who, desiring to strike its teacher, stamps upon the floor instead, it pours out its accumulated bitterness obliquely. When Mark Twain utters such characteristic aphorisms as, Heaven for climate, hell for society, we see the repressed artist in him striking out at Mrs. Clemens, and the Reverend Joseph Twitchell whose companionship the dominant Mark Twain called, and with reason, for he seems to have been the most lovable of men, a companionship which to me stands first after Livy's. Similarly, when he roars and rages against the novels of Jane Austen, we can see that buried self taking vengeance upon Mr. Howells, with whom Jane Austen was a prime passion, who had even taken Jane Austen as a model we know the constraint to which he submitted as regards religious observances. And once or twice, he writes, I smooched a Sunday when the boss wasn't looking. Nothing is half so good as literature hooked on Sunday, on the sly. Does it not explain the bitter animus that lies behind his comical complaint of George W. Cable when the two were together on a lecture tour? You will never, never know, never divine, guess, imagine, how loathsome a thing the Christian religion can be made until you come to know and study Cable daily and hourly. He has taught me to abhor and detest the Sabbath day, and hunt up new and troublesome ways to dishonor it. Habitually, as we have seen, he spoke of himself in public as a Presbyterian, as Twitchell's parishioner. His buried self redressed the balance in a passionate admiration for Robert Ingersoll, the atheist. "'Thank you most heartily for the books,' he writes to Ingersoll in 1879. "'I am devouring them.' 
they have found a hungry place, and they content it and satisfy it to a miracle. What, in fact, were the books he loved best? We find him reading Andrew D. White's Science and Religion, Lecky's European Morals, and similar books of a rationalistic tendency. But his favorite authors, after Voltaire, whom he had read as a pilot, were Pepys, Suetonius, and Saint-Simon. Saint-Simon's memoirs, he said, he had read twenty times, and we gather that he almost learned by heart Suetonius's record of the cruelties and licentiousness of imperial Rome. Why did he take such passionate pleasure in books of this kind, in writers who had so freely spoken out? Hear what he says in 1904 regarding his own book, What is Man? Am I honest? I give you my word of honor, privately. I am not. For seven years I have suppressed a book which my conscience tells me I ought to publish. I hold it a duty to publish it. There are other difficult tasks I am equal to, but I am not equal to that one. And when at last he did publish it, anonymously, it was with this foreword. Every thought in them, these papers, has been thought, and accepted as unassailable truth, by millions upon millions of men, and concealed, kept private. Why did they not speak out? Because they dreaded, and could not bear, the disapproval of the people around them. Why have not I published? The same reason has restrained me, I think. I can find no other. There we see, in all its absolutism, the censorship under which his creative self was laboring. One can easily understand his love for Saint-Simon and Casanova, and why in private he was perpetually praising their unrestrained frankness. And is there any other explanation of his Elizabethan breadth of parlance? Mr. Howells confesses that he sometimes blushed over Mark Twain's letters, that there were some which, to the very day when he wrote his eulogy on his dead friend, he could not bear to reread. Perhaps if he had not so insisted in former years, while going over Mark Twain's proofs, upon having that swearing out in an instant, he would never have had cause to suffer from his having loosed his bold fancy to stoop on rank suggestion. Mark Twain's verbal Rabelaisianism was obviously the expression of that vital sap which, not having been permitted to inform his work, had been driven inward and left there to ferment. No wonder he was always indulging in orgies of forbidden words. Consider the famous book 1601, that fireside conversation in the time of Queen Elizabeth. Is there any obsolete verbal indecency in the English language that Mark Twain has not painstakingly resurrected and assembled there? He, whose blood was in constant ferment, and who could not contain within the narrow bonds that had been set for him the riotous exuberance of his nature, had to have an escape valve. 
and he poured through it a fetid stream of meaningless obscenity, the waste of a priceless psychic material. Mr. Paine speaks of an address he made at a certain stomach club in Paris, which has obtained a wide celebrity among the clubs of the world, though no line of it or even its title has ever found its way into published literature. And who has not heard one or two of the innumerable Mark Twain anecdotes in the same vein that are current in every New York publishing house? In all these ways, I say, these blind, indirect, extravagant, wasteful ways, the creative self in Mark Twain constantly strove to break through the censorship his own will had accepted, to cross the threshold of the unconscious. A literary imp, says Mr. Paine, was always lying in wait for Mark Twain, the imp of the burlesque, tempting him to do the outré, the outlandish, the shocking thing. It was this that Olivia Clemens had to labor hardest against. Well, she labored, and well Mark Twain labored with her. It was the spirit of the artist bent upon upsetting the whole apple-cart of bourgeois conventions. They could, and they did, keep it in check. They arrested it, and manhandled it, and thrust it back. They shamed it, and heaped scorn upon it, and prevented it from interfering too much with the respectable tenor of their daily search for prestige and success. They could baffle it, and distort it, and oblige it to assume ever more complicated and grotesque disguises in order to elude them, but they could not kill it. In ways of which they were unaware it escaped their vigilance, and registered itself in a sort of cipher for us of another generation who have eyes to read upon the texture of Mark Twain's writings. For is it not perfectly plain that Mark Twain's books are shot through with all sorts of unconscious revelations of this internal conflict? In the Freudian psychology the dream is an expression of a suppressed wish. In dreams we do what our inner selves desire to do, but have been prevented from doing either by the exigencies of our daily routine, or by the obstacles of convention, or by some other form of censorship which has been imposed upon us, or which we ourselves, actuated by some contrary desire, have willingly accepted. Many other dreams, however, are not so simple. They are often incoherent, nonsensical, absurd. In such cases it is because two opposed wishes, neither of which is fully satisfied, have met one another and resulted in a compromise, a compromise that is often as apparently chaotic as the collision of two railway trains running at full speed. These mechanisms, the mechanisms of the wish-fulfillment and the wish-conflict, are evident, as Freud has shown, in many of the phenomena of everyday life. Whenever, for any reason, the censorship is relaxed, the censor is off guard. Whenever we are daydreaming and give way to our idle thoughts, then the unconscious bestirs itself and rises to the surface, gives utterance to those embarrassing slips of the tongue, those tender playfulnesses that express our covert intentions, slays our adversaries, 
sets our fancies wandering in pursuit of all the ideals and all the satisfactions upon which our customary life has stamped its veto in mark twain's books or rather in a certain group of them his fantasies we can see this process at work certain significant obsessions reveal themselves there certain fixed ideas the same themes recur again and again i am writing from the grave he notes in later life regarding some manuscripts that are not to be published until after his death on these terms only can a man be approximately frank he cannot be straightly and unqualifiedly frank either in the grave or out of it when he wrote captain stormfield's visit to heaven pudd'nhead wilson the american claimant those extraordinary twins he was frank without knowing it he the unconscious artist who when he wrote his autobiography found that he was unable to tell the truth about himself has conducted us unawares in these writings into the penetralia of his soul let us note prefatorily that in each case mark twain was peculiarly for the time being free of his censorship that he wrote at least the first draft of captain stormfield in reckless disregard of it is proved by the fact that for forty years he did not dare to publish the book at all but kept it locked away in his safe as for the american claimant pudd'nhead wilson and those extraordinary twins he wrote them at the time of the failure of the page typesetting machine shortly before he had been on the dizziest pinnacle of a worldly expectation calculating what his returns from the machine were going to be he had covered pages according to mr paine with figures that never ran short of millions and frequently approached the billion mark then suddenly reduced to virtual bankruptcy he found himself once more dependent upon authorship for a living he had passed in short through a profound nervous and emotional cataclysm so disturbed were his affairs so disordered was everything we are told that sometimes he felt himself as one walking amid unrealities at such times we know the bars of the spirit fall down people commit all sorts of aberrations go off the handle as we say the moral habits of a lifetime give way and man becomes more or less an irresponsible animal in mark twain's case at least the result was a violent effort on the part of his suppressed self to assert its supremacy in a propitious moment when that other self the business man had proved abysmally weak that is why these books that marked his return to literature appear to have the quality of nightmares he has told us in the preface to those extraordinary twins that the story had originally been a part of pudd'nhead wilson he had seen a picture of an italian monstrosity like the siamese twins and had meant to write an extravagant farce about them but he adds the story changed itself from a farce to a tragedy while i was going along with it a most embarrassing circumstance eventually he realized that it was not one story but two stories tangled together that he was trying to tell 
so he removed the twins from Puddenhead Wilson and printed the two tales separately. That alone shows us the confusion of his mind, the confusion revealed further in The American Claimant and in Puddenhead Wilson as it stands. They are, I say, like nightmares, these books, full of passionate conviction that turns into a burlesque of itself, angry satire, hysterical humor. They are triple-headed chimeras, in short, that leave the reader's mind in tumult and dismay. The censor has so far relaxed its hold that the unconscious has risen up to the surface. The battle of the two Mark Twains takes place almost in the open, under our very eyes. Glance now among these dreams at a simple example of wish-fulfillment. When Captain Stormfield arrives in heaven, he is surprised to find that all sorts of people are esteemed among the celestials who have had no esteem at all on earth. Among them is Edward J. Billings of Tennessee. He was a poet during his lifetime, but the Tennessee village folk scoffed at him. They would have none of him. They made cruel sport of him. In heaven things are different. There the celestials recognize the divinity of his spirit, and in token of this Shakespeare and Homer walk backward before him. Here, as we see, Mark Twain is unconsciously describing the actual fate of his own spirit, and that ample other fate his spirit desires. It is the story of Cinderella, the despised stepsister who is vindicated by the prince's favor, rewritten in terms personal to the author. We note the significant parallel that the Tennessee village, where the unappreciated poet lived to the scornful amusement of his neighbors, is a duplicate of the village in which Mark Twain had grown up, the milieu of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. This inference is corroborated by the similar plight of Puddenhead Wilson, the sardonic philosopher whom we should have identified with Mark Twain, even if the latter had not repeatedly assured us that an author draws himself in all his characters, even if we did not know that Puddenhead's calendar was so far Mark Twain's own calendar that he continued it in two later books, Following the Equator and A Double-Barrel Detective Story. Puddenhead, in short, is simply another Edward J. Billings, and the village folk treat him in just the same fashion. For some years, says the author, Wilson had been privately at work on a whimsical almanac for his amusement, a calendar with a little dab of ostensible philosophy, usually in ironical form, appended to each date, and the judge thought that these quips and fancies of Wilson's were neatly turned and cute. So he carried a handful of them around one day and read them to some of the chief citizens. But irony was not for those people. Their mental vision was not focused for it. They read those playful trifles in the solidest, earnest, and decided without hesitancy that if there ever had been any doubt that Dave Wilson was a puddin'head, which there hadn't, this revelation removed that doubt for good and all and hear how the half-breed Tom Driscoll baits him 
before all the people in the square. Dave's just an all-round genius, a genius of the first water, gentlemen, a great scientist running to seed here in this village, a prophet with the kind of honor that prophets generally get at home, for here they don't give shucks for his scientifics. They call his skull a notion factory. Hey, Dave, ain't it so? Come, Dave, show the gentleman what an inspired jack-at-all-science we've got in this town, and don't know it. Is it possible to doubt that here, more than half-consciously, Mark Twain was picturing the fate that had, in so real a sense, made a buffoon of him? Hardly when we consider the vindictive delight with which he pictures Puddinhead outmaneuvering the village folk, and triumphing over them in the end. Observe now the deadly temperamental earnestness of The Man That Corrupted Hadleyburg, a story written late in life when his great fame and position enabled him to override the censorship and speak with more or less candor. The temptation and the downfall of a whole town, says Mr. Paine, was a colossal idea, a sardonic idea, and it is colossally and sardonically worked out. Human weakness and rotten moral force were never stripped so bare or so mercilessly jeered at in the marketplace. For once Mark Twain could hug himself with glee in derision of self-righteousness, knowing that the world would laugh with him, and that none would be so bold as to gainsay his mockery. Probably no one but Mark Twain ever conceived the idea of demoralizing a whole community, of making its nineteen leading citizens ridiculous by leading them into a cheap glittering temptation and having them yield and openly perjure themselves at the very moment when their boasted incorruptibility was to amaze the world it was the leading citizens the pillars of society mark twain had himself been hobnobbing with all those years the very people in deference to whom he had suppressed his true opinions, his real desires, who despised him for what he was and admired him only for the success he had attained in spite of it. It was these people, his friends, who had in so actual a sense imposed upon him that he attacks in this terrible story of the passing stranger who took such a vitriolic joy in exposing their pretensions and their hypocrisy. I passed through your town at a certain time, and received a deep offense which I had not earned. I wanted to damage every man in the place, and every woman. Is not that the unmistakable voice of the misprized poet and philosopher in Mark Twain, the worm that has turned, the angel that has grown diabolic in a world that has refused to recognize its divinity? Here I say, in these two or three instances, we have the wish-fulfillment in its clearest form. Elsewhere we find the wish, the desire of the suppressed poet for self-effectuation, expressing itself in many vague hopes and vague regrets. It is the sentiment of the suppressed poet in all of us that he voices in his letter to Howells about the latter's novel, Indian Summer, 
saying that it gives a body a cloudy sense of his having been a prince once in some enchanted far-off land and of being an exile now and desolate and lord no chance ever to get back there again and consider the unfinished tale of the mysterious chamber the story as mr paine describes it of a young lover who is accidentally locked behind a secret door in an old castle and cannot announce himself he wanders at last down into subterranean passages beneath the castle and he lives in this isolation for twenty years there is something inescapably personal about that as for the character of the colonel sellers of the american claimant so different from the colonel sellers of the gilded age who is supposed to be the same man and whom mark twain had drawn after one of his uncles every one has noted that it is a burlesque upon his own preposterous business life isn't it more than this that rightful claimant to the great title of nobility living in exile among those fantastic dreams of wealth that always deceive him isn't he the obscure projection of the lost heir in mark twain himself inept in the business life he is living incapable of substantiating his claim and yet forever beguiled by the hope that some day he is going to win his true rank and live the life he was intended for the shadowy claim of mark twain's mother's family to an english earldom is not sufficient to account for his constant preoccupation with this idea just before mark twain's death he recalled says mr paine one of his old subjects dual personality and discussed various instances that flitted through his mind jekyll and hyde phases in literature and fact one of his old subjects dual personality could he ever have been aware of the extent to which his writings revealed that conflict in himself why was he so obsessed by journalistic facts like the siamese twins and the tickbourne case with its theme of the lost heir and the usurper why is it that the idea of changelings in the cradle perpetually haunted his mind as we can see from pudd'nhead wilson and the gilded age and the variation of it that constitutes the prince and the pauper the prince who has submerged himself in the role of the beggar-boy mark twain has drawn himself there just as he has drawn himself in the william wilson theme of the facts concerning the recent carnival of crime in connecticut where he ends by dramatically slaying the conscience that torments him and as for that pair of incompatibles bound together in one flesh the extraordinary twins the good boy who has followed the injunctions of his mother and the bad boy of whom society disapproves how many of mark twain's stories and anecdotes turn upon that same theme that same juxtaposition does he not reveal there in all its nakedness as i have said the true history of his life we have observed that in puddinhead's aphorisms mark twain was expressing his true opinions the opinions of the cynic he had become owing to the suppression and the constant curdling as it were of the poet in him while his pioneer self was singing the praises of american progress and writing a connecticut yankee at the court of king arthur the disappointed poet kept up a refrain like this october twelfth 
the discovery. It was wonderful to find America, but it would have been more wonderful to lose it. In all this group of writings we have been discussing, however, we can see that while the censorship had been sufficiently relaxed in the general confusion of his life to permit his unconscious to rise to the surface, it was still vigilant enough to cloak its real intentions. It is in secret that Pudd'nhead jots down his Saturnine philosophy. It is only in secret, in a private diary like Pudd'nhead's, that young Lord Berkeley, in the American claimant, thinks of recording his views of this fraudulent democracy where prosperity and position constitute rank. Here, as in the malevolent Mephistophelian passing stranger of the man that corrupted Halleyburg, Mark Twain frankly imagines himself. But he does so, we perceive, only by taking cover behind a device that enables him to save his face and make good his retreat. Pudd'nhead is only a crack-brained fool about things in general, even if he is pretty clever with his fingerprint invention. Otherwise he would find something better to do than to spend his time writing nonsense. And as for Lord Barclay, how could you expect a young English snob to know anything about democracy? That was the reaction upon which Mark Twain could safely count in his readers. They would only be fooling themselves, of course. They would know that they were fooling themselves. But in order to keep up the great American game of bluff, they would have to forgive him. As long as he never hit below the belt by speaking in his own person, in short, he was perfectly secure. And Mark Twain, the humorist, who held the public in the hollow of his hand, knew it. It is only after some such explanation as this that we can understand the supremacy among all Mark Twain's writings of Huckleberry Finn. Through the character of Huck, that disreputable, illiterate little boy, as Mrs. Clemens no doubt thought him, he was licensed to let himself go. We have seen how indifferent his sponsors were to the writing and the fate of this book. Nobody, says Mr. Paine, appears to have been especially concerned about Huck, except possibly the publisher. The more indifferent they were, the freer was Mark Twain. Anything that little vagabond said might be safely trusted to pass the censor, just because he was a little vagabond, just because, as an irresponsible boy, he could not, in the eyes of the mighty ones of this world, know anything in any case about life, morals, and civilization. That Mark Twain was almost, if not quite, conscious of his opportunity, we can see from his introductory note to the book. Persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot. He feels so secure of himself that he can actually challenge the censor to accuse him of having a motive. Huck's illiteracy, Huck's disreputableness, and general outrageousness are so many shields behind which Mark Twain can let all the cats out of the bag with impunity. He must, I say, have had a certain sense of his unusual security when he wrote some of the more cynically satirical passages of the book. 
when he permitted Colonel Sherburne to taunt the mob, when he drew that picture of the audience who had been taken in by the Duke proceeding to sell the rest of their townspeople, when he has the King put up the notice, Ladies and children not admitted, and add, There, if that line don't fetch them, I don't know Arkansas. The withering contempt for humankind expressed in these episodes was of the sort that Mark Twain expressed more and more openly, as time went on, in his own person. But he was not indulging in that costly kind of cynicism in the days when he wrote Huckleberry Finn. He must, therefore, have appreciated the license that little vagabond, like the puppet on the lap of a ventriloquist, afforded him. This, however, was only a trivial detail in his general sense of happy expansion, of ecstatic liberation. Other places do seem so cramped up and smothery, but a raft don't, says Huck on the river. You feel mighty free and easy and comfortable on a raft. Mark Twain himself was free at last. That raft and that river to him were something more than mere material facts. His whole unconscious life, the pent-up river of his own soul, had burst its bonds and rushed forth, a joyous torrent. Do we need any other explanation of the abandon, the beauty, the eternal freshness of Huckleberry Finn? Perhaps we can say that a lifetime of moral slavery and repression was not too much to pay for it. Certainly, if it flies like a gay, bright, shining arrow through the tepid atmosphere of American literature, it is because of the straining of the bow, the tautness of the string, that gave it its momentum. Yes, if we did not know if we did not feel that Mark Twain was intended for a vastly greater destiny, for the role of the demiurge, in fact, we might have been glad of all those petty restrictions and misprisions he had undergone, restrictions that had prepared the way for this joyous release. No smoking on Sundays, no swearing aloud, neckties having to be bothered over, that everlasting diet of P's and Q's, petty P's and pettier Q's, to which Mark Twain had had to submit, the domestic diet of Mrs. Clemens, the literary diet of Mr. Howells, those second parents who had taken the place of his first, we have to thank it, after all, for the vengeful solace we find in the promiscuous and general revolt of Huckleberry Finn. Don't talk about it, Tom! I've tried it, and it don't work. It don't work, Tom. It ain't for me. I ain't used to it. The widder's good to me and friendly, but I can't stand them ways. She makes me get up just at the same time every morning. She makes me wash. They comb me all that to thunder, and she won't let me sleep in the woodshed. I got to wear them blamed clothes that just smothers me, Tom. They don't seem to any air get through them somehow and they're so rotten nice that I can't sit down, nor lay down, nor roll around anywheres. I ain't slid on a cellar door for, well, appears to be years. I got to go to church and sweat and sweat. I hate them ordinary sermons. I can't catch a fly in there. I can't chaw. I got to wear shoes all Sunday. The widder eats by a bell. She goes to bed by a bell. She gets up by a bell. 
everything's so awful regular a body can't stand it well everybody does that way huck tom it don't make no difference i ain't everybody i can't stand it it's awful to be tied up so and grub comes too easy i, I don't take no interest in vittles that way i got to ask to go fishing i got to ask to go a-swimmin darned if i hain't got to ask to do everything well i'd got to talk so nice it wasn't no comfort i'd got to go up in the attic and rip out a while every day to get a taste in my mouth where i'd a died tom the widder wouldn't let me smoke she wouldn't let me yell she wouldn't let me gape nor stretch nor scratch before folks i had to shove tom i just had to now these clothes suits me and this barrel suits me and i ain't ever going to shake em any more this chapter began with the analogy of the lion in the circus you see what happens with mark twain when the trainer turns his back end of chapter eight those extraordinary twins read by john greenman